Do you like board games? I grew up playing board games my entire life with my family. It was a thing for my mom and dad. Uh, we would have game nights every single week and they would sit us down, we'd play Shoots and Ladders. Do you guys remember that? Hungry Hungry Hippo. Uh, guess who? That's where you flip over. Does, does your character have glasses? Does he have a mustache? <laughs> does she have a mustache? Um, yeah, but we, we play that game and then we play uh, Sorry. Uh, we play Trouble, uh, the game where you know it pops down and then the, uh, the dice would, would flip around. That, that was a great game. And then as I got older, uh, my dad taught us, um, uh, we learned how to play Monopoly and Risk. And those two became my favorites. When I went to college, we would stay up till two or three o'clock at night on the weekends playing Risk and Monopoly. We loved it. One of my friends that I used to play board games with in college gets married to a girl named Becky. His name is Paco. Paco marries Becky and they go into the married housing and then Billy Jane and I a year later get married and we move into the same building that they're in just opposite sides of the building. We face different parking lots, but we're in the same building and we thought it would be fun to have our first couple's date. Um, and so we invited Daniel, Paco, and his wife, Becky, over for games at our house. Billy Jane fixed this great meal, and then we were going to play Monopoly. Now, the thing I didn't tell you is that Billy Jane did not grow up playing board games. That wasn't a part of her family ethos, right? Like it wasn't a tradition for them at all. So there was a lot of games that I knew how to play that she didn't know how to play, and Monopoly was one of them. So when we asked uh, Daniel and Becky what game they wanted to play, they, they said Monopoly. So I had it, I pulled it out, lost the instructions long ago. Billie Jean had never played before, and so she asked, how do you play the game? And uh, we explained like just a couple of things, you know, you go around, you buy property, and then whoever ends up, the last, the last one left wins. Well, how do you knock people out? How do you get property? How do you make money? And we said, we'll explain all of that as we go. She said, it would really help me out if I could see the rules. And I said, we don't have the rules, I can't really explain to you everything that's that's involved uh, right now, but um, but if we start playing, I think I think you can learn as you go. So, against her better judgment, uh, <laughs> into my cluelessness, we went ahead and started playing. And we play by the rules where you have to go all the way around before you start buying property. Now everybody made it around the board before Billy Jane did. So here we are buying property. She rolls and she can't buy property yet. She lands on a property. She says, well, I'll buy that. And we said, well, you can't buy it. She says, well, why can't I buy it? I said, because you haven't gone around all the way around the board yet. And she says, well, Daniel's buying property. And I said, well, he already made it around. She goes, and you just bought property. And I said, well, I just made it all the way around. And she says, okay, now she's a little bit aggravated that everybody's starting to buy property. She's the last one, has any, she doesn't have anything yet. She finally rolls a double, makes it past go. We give her the $200 for making it past go, but then she lands on income tax and has to pay the whole $200 back. So she's, we give her the $200. We're like, oh yeah, but you, you have to pay that back. Why do I have to pay that back? Because you laid it on income tax. She goes, well, I want to buy income tax. We said, we... That's not a property. You can't you can't buy that. You have to pay it. So she's getting a little bit more aggravated every every time the rules for her feel like they're changing against her. But we said, but great news, you rolled a double, you get to roll again. So she rolls again, uh, she gets doubles, what would that be? That would be double threes. And then she gets to uh, the the uh, jail, but she's just visiting. And she says, I'll, I'll buy the jail. We said, we can't. You can't buy the jail either, but the good news is you don't have to pay anything. You're just visiting, but your roll doubles again. You get you get to roll one more time, and so you probably guessed what she did. She rolled double sixes, so she lands on St. James Place, and she goes, now I'll buy it, and then we go, 
you can't buy it. And she goes, why? And we said, because you rolled doubles three times. Now you have to go to jail. <laughs> she, she pauses for just a second. And you can just see like her bottom lip is starting to quiver. And she starts to shake. And then she grabs the board and she goes, I hate this game. And then she throws the board like that. Pieces of Monopoly are going across our apartment. And then she stands up and she runs into the bathroom and she locks the door. You know, the money's just kind of flittering down around us. And I look across the table at Paco and Becky and I go, I think you guys should go home now. It was, it was all my word. It's now it's like one of our funnest memories. And I did get her permission to share this story. And when I when I brought it up, I said, hey, babe, I'd, I'd like to start the teaching this weekend with your Monopoly story. And she goes, oh, my word, really? Why? And I told her why. And she goes, okay, that that makes sense. So she's totally cool with it. And it's, and it's funny now. And when we get to see Paco and Becky, even now, they'll bring it up sometimes. Then we laugh about it. But at the time, it was an absolutely horrible experience. She was in the bathroom for over an hour. It was the first time that we'd gotten like in a in a big fight. I didn't know what to do about it. I thought she was being a baby. She thought I was being a jerk. So it was it was a really awkward situation for a little bit. And then the next time that we saw this other couple, it was awkward again. And then Billie Jane was too embarrassed to have them over for a while. And all of that's worked out. They're some of our, our closest friends. But you know what we all hate? We all hate when we feel like the rules keep changing. Don't we? Like, I don't know anybody that likes that. And if you, if you hate that, that makes total sense because I think that that's something that, that we all absolutely hate. There's, there's nothing worse uh, than, than signing up for something and then finding out that there's a catch, right? Something that we weren't expecting, where the rules get changed or there was a rule we didn't know about that negatively impacts us or catches us off guard. Or maybe you've signed a contract that had fine print that you didn't know about. And once you found out the fine print, you were incredibly frustrated. Now, one of the things I appreciate most about Jesus and the life of faith that he calls us to is that there's no fine print. Jesus, now, now, now maybe things were hidden from you and your religious experience, but that isn't the way that Jesus actually treated people. When, when Jesus came to people and initiated a relationship with them, he told them up front what this was going to entail so that they could make a rational decision on whether or not they wanted a relationship with Jesus. So what I wanted to do for the teaching today is I want to show you where Jesus kind of explains the uh, the fine print on the front end. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 to 20, it says this, One day, as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, he's really famous, everybody knows him, uh, and Andrew, who was his brother. And they were throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Now, neither one of these guys were disciples of Jesus yet. In fact, they're two of the first four disciples Jesus ever chose. The other one was James and John, who actually owned a fishing business with their father, and they were close friends with Andrew and Peter. But it was Andrew and Peter that Jesus comes to, and here's what he says, verse... Uh, uh, next verse says, uh, Jesus called out to them, this is verse 20, come follow me and I will show you uh, how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. Now this, this little passage right here is actually the totality of the ministry of Jesus 
in a nutshell. It's everything that he said and everything he did all in one tiny little three-verse section of the Bible. It shows how Jesus comes to us where we're at uh, and chooses us the way we are. Uh, these guys weren't doing anything religious. They weren't doing anything that would separate them out as having greater potential than anybody else, much in the same way uh, when Jesus comes to us. You may or may not have been involved in any type of religious activity at all, but regardless of whether or not you were, Jesus still initiated the relationship with you. He invites you, just like he invited them, to follow him, and then he informed them up front what it would mean. And he told them, if you choose to follow me, you're going to become something that you're not right now. The end goal of your faith, he said, would be the inclusion of those who aren't in it yet. That's, that's the whole thing. He told them up front, if you choose to follow me, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to make you something that you're not. I'm going to help you become someone that you could not become on your own. And if you're wanting to know exactly who that is, you're going to be somebody who fishes for people. That's what you're going to be. If you follow me, the end result of your relationship with me will be your focus on those who do not have a relationship with me. Said another way, for those of you guys who've been in church for a long time, the end result of your spiritual development is your focus on those who don't have your spirituality yet. They then lay down their former lives, they laid down their nets, and then they end up following Jesus and nothing has changed. Jesus initiates a relationship with you. You and I can be watching the exact same Billy Graham sermon on TV or, or watching the same service on, on YouTube. And one of us will feel something in our heart and the other person won't. The difference has nothing to do with the person who's preaching the sermon. The difference has to do with whether or not Jesus is initiating a response in your heart or not. Then he gives you the opportunity to repent of your former ways, your former life, calls you to follow him, and then he develops in you a passion, a concern, a desire to help others who don't know him find and follow him also. Now, what Jesus does in the book of Matthew is that he then spends the next three years showing his disciples what it looked like to help people become followers of Jesus, to become fishermen of people, to be fishers of other people. And this made a lot of people upset because Jesus spent so much of his time with a non-religious crowd. But it was the non-religious crowd who were excluded from faith that Jesus had been sent to reach. During one of the times that Jesus was spending this time with those who were non-religious, it upset some religious people, and that's in Luke chapter 15. In Luke chapter 15, 1 and 2, it says, tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. I love that. That the people in Jesus's day who were the farthest from God felt most loved by God. It's a very cool thing. But that made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain. And they complained that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them, they said. So then Jesus in Luke chapter 15 tells them three stories that we've taught on before that we're not going to be teaching on today. But the point of all three of these stories is the same. 
that somebody's distance from God has never affected their value to God. The first story is about a sheep that is lost and, and uh, that the shepherd goes out to find it. The second story is about a coin that is lost and the work that the woman who lost the coin goes through to find it. And the third story is about a son who is lost and about the patience and grace that the father shows in an attempt to find and reconcile himself to his son. The point of all three of the stories is that Jesus had come to seek and to save those who were lost. And that's what it says in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. And that is the whole mission of God from Genesis to Revelations. It's God initiating a relationship with those who are most desperately in need of, of finding him. Drawing them to himself when they place their faith in him, having repented of their sins, he adopts them into their family, teaches them what it looks like, into his family, teaches them what it looks like to live in a relationship with him, and then calls them to go out to everybody else who still needs to be reconciled to God also. That's Matthew chapter 4. If you follow me, I will make you a fisher of, of people. And today we're looking at the last conversations that Jesus ever had. So at the time of the teaching that we're going to be looking at today, Jesus has already died on the cross, resurrected from the dead, which is what we're celebrating next weekend on, on Easter. And in the 40 days between the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension into heaven, what is the one thing you think he probably emphasized to his disciples more than anything else? If you guessed that it was helping lost people become found, you'd be right. Now, we don't have very many of the things that Jesus said in those 40 days. In fact, it's noticeably slight. Like it's, it's, it's very few things, events, things that Jesus said that we don't have very many of his teachings at all. But what we do have are Jesus repeating three different times what he had told the disciples the very first time that he called them. In Matthew chapter 28, we see Jesus telling his disciples to now go out into all of the world and help people who are far from me find and follow me. And he does this in, in Galilee. In the book of Mark, we have Jesus saying the same thing, but Jesus said this on the actual day that he had resurrected from the dead. And in Luke, we have Jesus doing this uh, in a town called Emmaus. So Jesus only repeated himself uh, three times before his resurrection in Luke chapter 15, when he said the whole point was to help lost people become found people. And then he repeats himself three times again after the resurrection. And in all three times, he's telling them to actually go out and find people. So I don't know if you're getting the point or not that Jesus is trying to emphasize, but the number one thing that God is trying to do in the hearts of those who are his kids is to get them to actually follow him. And the more you follow him, the more focused you will be on all of your friends and your family members who don't follow him. But why is that so hard for us? I've got four reasons why I think it's difficult for me to do this. Number one, I don't believe it'll actually work. Number two, I feel unprepared. What if they ask a question I'm not ready for? Number three, what if they say no and they reject me and I, I screw it up and I say it wrong? And number four, sometimes I just don't care about other people that much and my heart is cold. I think Matthew's account 
of Jesus's instructions to his disciples, which mimics his first instructions to them, can help us with those four things that we struggle with. So if you've got your Bible, go to Matthew chapter 28. This is one of the three times after the resurrection of Jesus where he tells his disciples to go out everywhere and to actually do this. I think there's some things in this telling of Jesus's emphasis on our responsibility to help lost people become found that will help us. So in Matthew chapter 28, verse 16 and 17, it says, Then the eleven disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Most likely the same mountain where he had been transfigured, if you're familiar with the narrative of Jesus's life. When they saw Jesus, oh, by the way, the mountain where Jesus had told them to go, and when they saw Jesus, they worshiped him, but some of them had doubted. Now, Jesus had already resurrected from the dead. They had seen Jesus having already resurrected from the dead that first Sunday night. All of them except for Thomas. There's a very famous story about Thomas showing up after Jesus had already left saying that I won't believe unless I get to see him and put my hands in his nail prints and put my hand in the spear, uh, the spear wound uh, in, in his side is what he had said. So if you're familiar uh, with the story of, of the life of Jesus, maybe you're familiar with with that. But then Jesus tells them at some other point during those 40 days, I want you guys to go to Galilee. That's not a short trip. We don't know a lot of things that he, they did up there. One of the things that they did is they went fishing. Jesus has a breakfast with the disciples where he gives Peter, who had rejected him three times on the night that he had uh, that Jesus had been betrayed. He gives Peter three chances to ask for forgiveness for betraying him. But the only other thing that we know of that happened is this conversation right here. Jesus tells them to go to this mountain and they don't ask why, they just go where he tells them to go. And that's one of the marks of being a disciple of Jesus, is that when Jesus tells us to do something, you prioritize it in your life to make sure that you do it. In John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus summarized it by saying, if you love me, you'll do what I say, you'll keep my commandments. Now we don't do what God says out of fear. That's not the motivation. And God doesn't try to, to, to motivate us through fear. And the first covenant that God had made with mankind, it was based on our ability to keep the rules. And we kept screwing up. At that point, as long as it was based on our ability to do good, to be good enough for God to love us, there was appropriate reason uh, to be afraid because we were constantly falling short of God's expectations. So God made a new covenant, a new arrangement with mankind, which was based on Jesus's ability to keep the rules. So when we accept that Jesus, God who shows up in the human story, kept all of the rules of the Ten Commandments without breaking a single one or being selfish towards his fellow man, but that he kept the rules on our behalf and then took the punishment that we deserve for breaking those rules, that's how we're made right with God. When I get to the place where I accept, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection pays off my debt before God, and I ask Jesus to forgive me and save me. And at that point, I'm saved. Not because I earned it, but because Jesus did and gave it to me. And the kind of grace that's demonstrated to me when God gives me salvation for my sin, when you understand that I didn't earn this, Jesus did on my behalf. When somebody does something extravagantly generous for you, it changes your opinion about them. And you're going to be nice to them for the rest of your life. Not because you're afraid of them, but out of gratitude to them. And that's the same thing that Jesus is talking about when he says, if you, if you get what I did for you, what I'm doing for you, if you understand the price that's paid so that you could be made right with God, 
that should move you to feel a certain way in your heart. And I hope that that prompts love. The kind of love that I've demonstrated to you by laying down my life for you, I hope you would have toward me by laying down your life for me. And if you love me that way, you'll do what I ask. And these disciples, they did. They did exactly what Jesus said. I mean, truthfully, when we talk about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, it's simply obeying the instructions of Jesus. I mean, that's the essence of what it means to be a devoted follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus. You don't have to live in that day in order to be a disciple of Jesus. You can be a disciple of Jesus right now if you're willing to obey the teachings of Jesus. Why would you do that? Because you love him. Unless you don't. And then you wouldn't obey. Jesus then goes on to say, after he's given them these instructions, here's what I want you to do, fellas. I want you to leave Jerusalem. I want you to walk all the way up into the northern side of Israel, the northern, northern territory of Judea. And I want you to go to the mountain that I told you about, and I want you to wait for me. When they get there, uh, Jesus says to them in Matthew chapter 26, verse 18, he says, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, because I've been given that authority, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands that I have given you and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's actually what I want more than anything else. I want the presence of God in my life. I want to know and to feel that God is with me always. I don't always feel the presence of God in my life and I don't always feel like God is with me, but Jesus said, if you begin to participate in the work of God, you will experience the presence of God. I'm telling you what I want you to do is, I want you, if you love me, you'll do this, right? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go into all of the world, all of the nations, and make disciples, baptize them, then teach them to follow me like I have done for you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And that's, that's what I want really bad. I want more of God in my life. So there are three, three important things from this passage of Scripture, the three most important things to remember if we want to see the presence of God in our lives. And number one is this. Ready? Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. Philippians chapter 2, verse 7 puts it this way. Instead, he, Jesus, gave up his divine privileges he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being when he appeared in human form. Verse 8, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, because of that, because he humbled himself and died a criminal's death on the cross, God, the Father, elevated him, Jesus, God the Son, to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Everything in heaven, everything on earth, everything under the earth. Like there's no consciousness that doesn't have to submit to the authority of Jesus because of the power and authority that God gave him because he humbled himself and died on the cross. This means that Jesus, and it goes on to say, and every tongue will declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus has the power to give eternal life to every person who ever calls on him to be saved. That's what Jesus has the power to do. Jesus has the power to soften any person's heart. That's what Jesus has the power to do. Jesus has the power to initiate the conversation between me and those that he's drawing to faith in himself. 
anytime he wants. Jesus has the power to give you the words to say that your friend or your family member needs to hear. The number one thing that I need to remember if I'm going to experience the presence of God in my life is that Jesus has all authority to make the stuff happen that needs to happen for me to experience the work of God in my life. The second thing that you and I need to remember, because Jesus has been given all of all authority, you and I can join him in his plan to rescue our friends and family. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, Jesus said, Therefore, because I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth, I want you to go and make disciples. That's what I want you to do. Now, this is more than just direction. It's a command. There's no doubt about it. But it's also an encouragement is what it is. The language that's used implies that it's more than just a command. It's, it's an encouragement to get out there and do it. Uh, my son, Garrett, pitched his very first game in, I think it was fourth grade, when he was 10. It was in the, it was in the majors, the 10, 11, and 12-year-olds. And Garrett's a fourth grader, and I've been working with him when I'm pitching. I'm the assistant coach. And the head coach, his name is Jack. He's a good friend of mine even now in, here in Stoughton. Uh, I think he's a, a deacon even at Immaculate, but great guy. One of the best coaches, the best coach. And he's the guy I always try to be like when, I, when I'm coach. Anyway, Jack is the coach, and he, and he puts Garrett in to start. And Garrett's very, very nervous about this, and he, he's afraid. And I, I called Garrett over, and uh, I said, hey, buddy, listen, you can do this. Now go out there and do it. You're, you can do fine. You can do this. Come on, you got this. He's like, I'm not going to do it. I said, Garrett, you need to go out there on the mound. Now I'm giving him direction. I'm giving him a command. But I'm not doing this as this authoritative, get your butt out there and throw that stinking ball. What I'm doing is I'm telling my son, dude, we've been working on this. Like, I know you. I know what you're capable of. Now get out there and do it. And the truth is, I don't care whether or not he strikes the kid out. I just want him to be participating in the game. I know that if he's out there on the mound instead of sitting in here on the bench, he's going to have a much greater experience. And truthfully, I as a coach get to do more with him and he gets to experience the pleasure of baseball when he's actually throwing the baseball far more than he gets to experience baseball by watching it from the bench. Now, the cool thing is, is that he struck out his first three batters. His batter, it's a tree. <laughs> he had nine pitches and struck out three kids. Never seen anything like it. We all went nuts. Everybody went crazy. And he's never had another inning like that in his entire life. I mean, if that was the way he always played baseball, you'd be watching him on TV. So I think like his, the greatest moment in his baseball career was the first inning he ever pitched. And Garrett, if you're watching this service, I'm so sorry. But you and I both know that this is, is true. But Jesus said this in John chapter 20, verse 21. Again, I say, peace be with you, because he knows we get scared about this. He says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Success isn't measured by how many of my friends I'm able to talk into becoming a Christian. Like, that's not even my job. Like as a fisher of men, I don't put fish on hooks. My job is to put the hook in the water, right? The fish chooses whether or not it wants that. And, and in Jesus' day, it wasn't with a hook. But if you remember the two different stories of Jesus telling the disciples to cast their nets on the other side, 
Their job was just to put the net in the water. Jesus then brought the fish to the net, but had they never put the net in the water, there would have been no fish brought into the boat. And when Jesus says that if you you are going to be my disciple, if you follow me, I will make you a fisher of people. The truth is, you can't be a fisher of people unless you put the net in the water. Like my job isn't to put the fish in the net. My job is to put the net in the water. Jesus's job is to put the fish in the net. So I'm not responsible for helping my closest friends on my street become devoted followers of Jesus. I am responsible for whether or not I'm willing to have those conversations. That's what I'm responsible for. And the truth is, you might not know everything about religion, about Christianity, about Jesus, but you are an expert on your story of how you came to faith. Last week, we talked about this in the teaching. We said there's five things that you can do to make it easier for your friends who are disconnected from God to find their way back to God, to catch fish. You can begin with prayer. And truthfully, I think you need to begin praying on a daily basis for your two or three closest friends or family members who are spiritually disconnected from God. Then you need to listen to their stories. E is you need to eat with them. Just spending time with them socially, developing a relationship. It's Jesus hanging out with the publicans and notorious sinners. He's even eating with them. Jesus is developing a relationship with those who are most desperate to find their way back to God. And then you need to find ways to serve them add value to their lives. It's the way that Jesus would would heal the blind man before he would call the blind man to repent of sin. Jesus would take care of the guy's physical problem first because sometimes they couldn't see their spiritual need when their physical need was so blaring, right? We do the same thing. And then the last S is that we just share our story. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 says, and all of this is a gift from God who brings us back to himself through Christ And then God has given us this task of reconciling other people to him. You can pray for your family members to become Christians all you want. You can pray for your best friend to find their way back to God, to repent of their sin and become devoted followers of Jesus. But what you and I need to remember is that God already began answering that prayer when he saved us from our sin. Because we are probably a part of their spiritual journey toward faith in God through Jesus. And if you start to get nervous when that moment comes up, now just so that you guys know, uh, our neighbors across the street, our neighbors behind us, our neighbors catty corner behind us, our neighbors across the street, three doors down, and our neighbors across the street next door, they moved and the new people, not as much, but All of these different people have committed to faith in Jesus as a result of us using that blessed metaphor that you learned from last week. And in every one of those conversations, I have gotten nervous. Like they'll say something spiritual and God's Holy Spirit begins to prompt me and he says, put your net in the water. You need to say something. And I'm like, I don't know, I don't know. Right, you get all nervous, but you put that little net. And like if you're starting to get nervous, you need to remember the last thing that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28. And that's this, that you aren't alone. Matthew 28, verse 20 says, Teach these new disciples to weigh all the commands that I have given you, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now that line, even to the end of the age, 
intentionally extends this promise beyond just those disciples and at that point in human history. He said, beyond you guys, beyond this moment in time, he's talking to you. Like on the night that Jesus was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, I pray for those who follow me. And then he said, and I pray for all of those who will believe in me, who have never met me, because they believed what they're going to say about me. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, the night before he was crucified, he prayed for you and me. And this is Jesus talking to us through his disciples when he says, I will be with you. All of you, even those who live past this moment in time, to the end of this age, all of you who will end up becoming my followers, who will love me enough to actually obey me. Those of you who will start to share your story, those of you who will begin to dip your nets in the water, when you're scared to do this, you need to remember, I'm with you in this moment. I created you for this second in time. So when every one of those conversations got to the place where my neighbors would bring up something spiritual, I could be confident dropping my net into the water because I knew for a fact that God was doing something in their heart or else they wouldn't have brought up religion. Like every time somebody asks you about God, about church, about Jesus, about the Bible, you can be confident that the reason why they're spiritually curious is because God's Holy Spirit is beginning to draw them. And if they trusted you enough to come to you with that information, you can be confident God has created you and given you enough information to help them get in the boat with you. You and I are guaranteed the same thing that they were, that God is going to be with us. In Hebrews chapter 3, this last phrase in the verse, and then verse verse of verse 5 and verse 6 says this, For God has said, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. Every moment where they bring up something spiritual, you need to know it's because I'm already at work in their heart. You don't need to be afraid of this moment. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm with you. Drop your net in the water. So that we can say with confidence, he says, I'll never leave you, so that you can say with confidence that the Lord is my helper, so I will have no fear. The promise that he will never leave was to everyone who will ever have the Holy Spirit in them, but the ones who actually see the work of God are the ones who are willing to participate in the work of God. Your fear is working against your faith. And your faith is the only thing that moves God according to Hebrews chapter, uh, Hebrews chapter 6. Excuse me, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. It's our faith that moves God into action. And it's our fear that inhibits our faith. And God says, I want you to know I am your training wheels. I am your swim floaties in the deep end. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm not going to let you drown. When the moment shows up, stand up. And if you haven't seen the work of God or the presence of God in your life, it might be because you haven't been willing to participate in the work of God and the lives of all of those around you all of the time. Only your faith moves God to work on your behalf. Do you remember when Jesus said that you have not because you ask not, and you ask not because you don't believe I'll do it? It's your faith. Remember when Jesus healed the guy who was blind and he said, according to your faith, 
be it unto you. And the guy was healed. Why? Because he had faith. Then there was another guy whose son was demon-possessed. And Jesus said, do you believe that I can do this? And he said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. He's like, I believe a little bit, but there's a whole lot of doubt in there. And Jesus goes, I can still work with that. Do you remember at the beginning of this passage in Matthew chapter 28? It says, they came to the mountain and they, as Jesus had asked them to, and they worshiped him, but some of them doubted. You know, he didn't get on to them for struggling with their faith, and he still gave them the instructions to go into all of the world and make disciples of all nations. And that phrase, nations, is all cultures, all people. Prior to the resurrection of Jesus, God was focused on one ethnic group, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they were a picture for the rest of the world. After the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus now tells his disciples, make no distinction between any person. Every single one of them need to be included. Why have some of us seen some of our friends come to faith in Jesus and others of us haven't? Because some of us were able to get beyond our fear and dip our nets in the water and have these conversations with our friends. And when you put your net in the water, guess what God puts in the net? Fish. If you want to see God at work, I'll say this one last time. If you want to see God at work in your life, then get involved in the work of God with your life. If you're saved, if you've turned from sin and began following Jesus, if you were lost and now you were found, I guarantee you God used another person to help you in that journey. Am I right? Right? And you're asking God to help your friends come to faith in Jesus. I'm going to give you another guarantee that God wants to use you in their life to be part of their story, their journey to faith in Jesus. So in wrapping this up, I'm going to remind you what we talked about last week, and that's this. Number one, begin with prayer. Who are your two or three closest friends or family members who are spiritually disconnected from God? You need to talk to God every day about them. I'm telling you, prayer makes coincidence happen. When you begin praying for your neighbors, watch. It's after you begin praying for your neighbors that your neighbors will bring up a spiritual conversation. Now, this is the week before Easter. And believe it or not, more people who are non-religious attend an Easter service than even Christmas Eve. And according to many different polls that I've quoted every single year the week before Easter, I'm not going to quote the same polls all over again, almost 90% of everybody who is not religious said that they would attend a religious service if a friend asked them to. What that means, if you can think of two or three friends that are spiritually disconnected from God, and if you were to invite them to be a part of our services next weekend, there's a 90% chance they would. And if they do, they have a chance to turn from their sin and brokenness and begin following Jesus. And you just might experience the presence of God, not only at work in your life, but through your life and their life also. Listen to the stories of those who are spiritually disconnected from God. I'm convinced that some Christians just don't have close enough friendships with those who actually need Christ. We're not hanging out with the people that Jesus would hang out with. We prefer hanging out with people that think and believe exactly like us. But that isn't who Jesus told us that we should, yes, we're to spend time with other followers of Jesus because it encourages our faith, but the maturity of our faith is expressed in the ability that we have to connect with those who don't share our faith. 
eat with them, spend time with them, have them over for dinner. It's starting to warm up now, right? Maybe you could do a barbecue, something like that. Uh, find ways to serve them and then, and then share your story. Maybe you need a different arc to your story. Maybe you're spiritually disconnected from God and somebody invited you to be a part of our service today. That is stinking awesome. Maybe you would say, I would describe myself as spiritually disconnected or I feel spiritually lost right now. The cool thing for you to know is that the entire point of the Bible and the whole point of Christianity is you. It's those of us who are spiritually disconnected, those of us who feel spiritually lost, connecting to God through faith in his son, Jesus, and those who are lost, becoming found, finding a spiritual home again. So if that's where you're at, I'm going to ask, would you admit that you have broken the commandments? That's an obvious yes. And if you're guilty of breaking God's commands on judgment day, when he asks, are you innocent or guilty of breaking my laws, what would you have to say? The same as me, guilty which is the reason why we need Jesus. Because if God's good, he can't let guilty people go free. But because he's love, he'd let an innocent person. That's why I can't pay for your sins, because I'm not innocent. But that's why you and I both need Jesus. He's the only one who ever lived without breaking the law. He's the only innocent substitute for all of those who are guilty. And if Jesus is just a man, then his one death only replaces one life. But if he's God as man, then God's life, God's death, would be worth the life of everyone who had ever lived, which is the reason why Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is so important. Maybe you already know that. Then your prayer is, Dear God, forgive me for sinning against you, for breaking your commands. I feel spiritually disconnected and I want to be connected. I'm spiritually lost. I want to be found. Dear God, rescue me from my sin. I'm all in. You laid down your life for me. I'm laying down my life for you. I don't know which side of that coin you're on, those who've already been found who need to help find those who are lost or those who are lost that need to be found. But I'm going to ask all of us if we would to pray. God, thank you for your love and for each person who's a part of our services this weekend. I pray, God, that those who are found would right now be impressed by your Holy Spirit with the names of two or three of our friends who are spiritually disconnected. Help us to pray for them every single day this week. God, to help us to look for opportunities to invite them to be a part of our services next week. God, for those who are disconnected, and if that's you, your prayer is, Jesus, I trust your death, burial, and resurrection pays off my debt. Can you pray that? God, take away my sin. Forgive me for it. Save me from my sin. Help me to follow you, Jesus, with the rest of my life. I'm all in. I'm yours. Can you make that your prayer? God, I pray that you're pleased by the attitude direction of our hearts and the prayers that we're making right now. In the name of your son, Jesus, I pray. Amen.